little history of who I am, where I am, where I came from, so you get a, get a feel for the kind of guy that's with you this time. And for me, it's easiest to just think in decades, because I've had a lot of decades here on this earth at this time. So my, my first uh, indelible spiritual memory is in 1948, when I was a six-year-old, and my Southern Baptist grandmother came from North Carolina to Los Angeles, and she took me to the corner of Hill and Figueroa in Los Angeles to a great big circus tent spread with sawdust, and I sat and listened to Billy Graham on the corner of Hill and Figueroa as a six-year-old in 19. 48. And I remember that evangelist kind of his blue eyes, radiant spotlight. I don't remember anything he said, but I do remember the experience, and it gives you a little feel for the kind of uh, care and love that I had that goes back a generation to my grandmother Hughes, Rose Hughes, who's been in glory a long time and uh, a great believer. I didn't come to know Christ. I had some things planted, but it was in 1955, a full decade later, in the 50s, that uh, I had gone to a church plant, about 50 people. I was just a boy, 12 years old, and uh, I had heard the gospel, and I, I knew I was on the outside. I knew I didn't know Jesus, and I didn't think it could happen to me. I just, I, how these people really knew the Lord, really knew it. And uh, as Providence would have it, I was, went to a camp in the Sierras that summer, and I heard my pastor preach. And at the end of it, I said, I, I went to him kind of down in front, and I said, I, I, I don't think I know Jesus. And he said, here, sit down, Kent. And he opened my Bible, my King James Bible, to Romans 10, 9, and 10. That if thou, I got it in the King James, shall confess that if thou, let me see, I, I, do I have it in the King James? <laughs> that if thou uh, shall confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and believe in thine heart that God is raised from the dead, thou shalt be saved. And I remember looking at that, those India little thin pages in my little King James, and my tears began to fall on that. And it was like those words came right up into my eyes and into my mind and into my heart, and I was marvelously regenerated. I mean, I was saved because I knew I was outside, and now I was in the inside. My sins were forgiven. You know, I, I felt like I could float away, you know. I've often walked down this street before, but the pavement always stayed beneath my feet before. But now I'm 20 miles high, and I was. And uh, because my father was deceased and the young pastor took an interest in me, I identified with him, the guy that led me to the Lord. I said, I wanted to be a preacher. So God in his providence and his sovereignty called me as a boy. So I preached my first sermon when I was 16 years old on Jonah and the Whale. Um, entitled, God is a Whale of a Plan for Your Life, sermon of dubious wit, <laughs> doubtful quality, 
But when you do it when you're 16 years old, I mean, people will pat you on the head. And so I was encouraged. And so that set my course in, in life. Uh, so that was in the 50s. And I, I, they say the other thing that happened in the 50s, I'll, I'll make this very quick, is that uh, something earth-shattering for, for evangelical Christianity happened in the 60s. And that is when there were five missionaries martyred in Quito, Ecuador, in 1956. And Jim Elliott, who said he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose, really stuck with me. And so I wanted to follow Jesus. Graduated from high school, uh, started college, met and married my, uh, my wonderful wife of 50 winters and summers, Barbara. Just celebrated our, our 50th, and uh, she had an evangelistic heart, and so uh, we began to finish college and then began seminary, and uh, my church was looking for a youth pastor. That little church had finally grown to where it needed a youth pastor. They couldn't find anybody, so they hired me. And uh, so my experience in ministry when I was doing seminary was youth pastor work, which was the decade of the 60s in California, Southern California. Now, Robin Williams has a, a, a quote that he's made famous in one of his movies, which was, if you remember the 60s, you weren't there. <laughs> and uh, I do remember the 60s, but it's because I, w I wasn't doing uh, LSD or cannabis uh, I was doing youth ministry, so I remember it very well. And to prove that I do remember the 60s, Robin Williams didn't originate that quote. It was George Carlin. So I was there in the 60s. And uh, so if you'd have seen me then, this very conservative old man, septuagenarian, that's standing before you, you would have seen sandals, bell-bottoms, tie-dyed T-shirt, American Standard Bible, covered with rabbit skin, and uh, you'd have seen me, uh, long hair, preaching the gospel to students. That's what I did during the 60s. 70s, planted a church in the North Orange County area of Los Angeles, was involved in that about five years, and then uh, right at the end of the 70s, I was called to college church in Wheaton, a far different Midwestern culture, as you, if you know anything about Wheaton. And there I was for uh, 27 years. And the heart of my ministry uh, was and is expository preaching. That's preaching through a book, one section, one text after another. John Calvin calls it Lectio Continua. That, that's the tradition, and that's what I did for 27 years and uh, um, have been... You know, involved in preaching the gospel, doing evangelism, and world missions. So that's my heart. That's what my life's been given to. So I'm 41 years in ministry and now uh, some years in itinerant ministry. So I want you to know and understand that. Now, <clears throat> I... I'll say a lot about this this afternoon. I'll just say, when someone says to me, do you believe the Bible is the word of God? Do you believe that every word is the word of God? And I say, no, I don't believe that. I believe that every jot and tittle 
is the Word of God. So you're, the, the guy that's speaking to you right now is a guy that believes with all of his heart and is totally convinced that this is the absolute, holy inerrant, totally sufficient, massively potent Word of God. And that's why we're going to give it close attention, very close attention. Uh, in fact, the, the next the two talks that we have this morning deal with Philippians, and you want to take your Bibles and turn to Philippians, the second chapter. And we're going to deal very closely with verses 5 through 11 of Philippians. And you know that this talk for this hour is entitled The Super Humiliation of Christ. And in the next session, it's going to be The Super Exaltation of Christ. And we're taking this this famous passage and we're going to look at it very closely. What I'd like to do before I begin is just read it and I'm going to pick it up um, in verse 3, and then read on to verse 11. I'll be reading in the New American Standard Bible. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him And bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. As far as God's word. And amen to that. So what we're going to be doing now is looking at the, the, the super humiliation of Christ. And if you want to have an outline to kind of hang these things on, it will be his uh, humility in heaven. Christ's humility in heaven. That'll be verse 6. And then Christ's humility in the incarnation verse 7, and then Christ's humility in death, and it go from the end of verse 7 into 8. So we're looking at verses 6 through 8, just three verses during this time. Christ's humility in heaven, Christ's humility in the incarnation, Christ's humility in his death. I think it'll be helpful to kind of hang on what we're going to be looking at. And, uh, and I want to say that there are no small thoughts here. These are massive thoughts. And it's going to require some concentration to put your head and your hearts around them. But if you do, it's going to be good for your soul. 
Because the most important thing about you, as I'm going to say, is what you think and believe about Christ. That's what we want to expand in the next couple of lectures together. Now, the Apostle Matthew reports that toward the end of Jesus' ministry, that an ugly and competitive spirit rose among the apostles when James and John and their mother went to Jesus alone and tried to get him promised that they would have special thrones in heaven. That didn't go down very well. Matthew says, Matthew 20, 24 says, when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. Indignant puts it mildly. They were angry. Harsh words were uh, said between the two. Temper, tempers flared. Kind of a apostolic kerfuffle took place. A little dust rising from them. I mean, they are angry with each other. So Jesus called them together. And you read this in Matthew 20, verses 25 and following. And Jesus said to those, to the twelve, You know the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Then he gives that great verse out of Matthew. Even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Powerful, logical statement from the very lips of Jesus. And you would think no one in that apostolic band could miss the point. I mean, it's clear as can be, you hear him say it. But you know that, that hearing the truth and making it a part of your lives is another thing altogether, right? And several days later, after this, when the apostles arrived in Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover, they were still going at it. That competitive spirit, that kind of pushing back, chest-thumping, me-first spirit. Well, the situation is, is that Peter and John had secured a room for the Passover, as Jesus had directed, but they had neglected to make arrangements for foot washing. And when they wandered in, no one would condescend, not one of them would condescend to wash anyone else's feet. So they arrived grimy with the dust of the the road on them, dirty feet. No one would volunteer to do it. And uh, they're kind of a, a picture of how we can be ourselves. Now, as John's gospel relates to the account, behind the closed doors, the disciples were reclining at a table with their dirty feet stretched out behind them. The meal's in process. But no doubt the conversation is strained. There's uh, just a little reticence there because these guys are angry with each other. I mean, what a great way to eat the Passover. What a great way to eat Thanksgiving, you know. Tension around the table. But then they became aware that the, past, that the, that the uh, Savior had risen 
from supper and was standing apart from them. And they watched him as he removed his outer garment and he clothed himself with a towel. And then he poured water in a basin and then he began to go slowly around the circle, washing their outstretched feet and wiping them dry with the towel with which he's wrapped. Now, that was breathtaking, absolutely electrifying, because this was a humble job. In fact, a Jewish commentary, a Jewish midrash, said that you could not command another Hebrew to do it. In fact, you couldn't even command a slave to do it. It had to be voluntary. And Jesus did it in the most humble of ways, wrapped with a servant's towel. And in the breathlessness of that moment, they're in the upper room. There are no cars going by. There are no sirens. It's at night by candlelight, flickering candlelight, absolute silence. They could hear the trickle of water as he poured it over their feet. They could hear the friction of the towel. They could probably hear the master's labored breathing. Because the incarnate son, God himself, had humbly washed the feet of his prideful, arrogant disciples. And then, amidst the silence, and you can imagine how these words came down. John has it in John chapter 13, verses 14 through 16. He said to them, If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, You also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, amen, amen, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. So using that ancient logic that argues from the greater to the lesser, He says, what is true of me has to be true of you. And coming from the lips of Jesus, the lips of infinitude, it is an infinitely compelling statement. But like all people, and we're the same, that kind of logic will stall in our hearts because we're so like those people around the table. Uh, Robert Rain said some years ago, he said, I am like James and John. Lord, I size up other people in terms of what they can do for me, how they can further my purposes, feed my ego, satisfy my needs, give me strategic advantage. Lord, I turn to you to get the inside track and obtain special favors. Your direction for my schemes, your power for my projects, your sanction for my ambitions, your blank checks for whatever I want. I am like James and John. So given our natural tendency towards self-centeredness, it's always been difficult to live out Christ's directive. And Paul would later advise the Philippians in our present text, verses 2 and 3, chapter 2 of Philippians, verses 2 and 3, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look 
not only to the interests of others, but also your own interests, but the interests of others. Uh, the, the embrace of humility and others' interests is hard. And it's difficult in the most important relationships to be thinking about others first and considering them more important than ourselves. And here in Philippians, as Paul is telling them how to live a life that is worthy of the gospel, he then turns to the ultimate example of Christ and his self-humiliation, his super-humiliation in verses 5 and following, which I want to say to you, verses 5 through 11 are the theological, Christological centerpiece and jewel of this book. What we're going to be looking at today is very, very sacred ground. Some people consider it to be the most exalted prose in all of the New Testament. Uh, One scholar likened it to the soaring, unanswerable language of a Bach cantata, which is best understood by being heard out to the end and then heard again and again and again. And it certainly does service in this way as you read it, as you see Christ in his super humiliation going down and down and down and further down, and then in his super exaltation being exalted above all things and giving a name that is above every name. And brothers and sisters, every syllable in the account before us is from God. And we want to look at it. Now, Paul begins in verse 5 where he says, after he's urged them to look out for the interest of others, have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus. Literally, kind of awkward in the Greek, think this among yourselves which also in Christ Jesus. So Paul's concern for the Philippians is not so much for the minds as their interaction for the whole congregation that they would take on the attitude and life and mind of Jesus. Have this mind among yourselves. So as we take up the mind of Jesus, we need to understand this isn't for our satisfaction or curiosity. This is for our souls and our lives. Now, you first see Christ's humility in heaven in verse 6. And our Savior's humility in heaven is explicit. See verse 6? Who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now, Christ existed in the majestic form of God from all eternity as he shared in the glory and splendor of the Father. And Jesus alluded to this, for instance, in John in the Upper Room Discourse in John 17, 5, on the eve of his death, when he said, praying to God the Father, and now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Uh, John Calvin comments, the form of God here in verse 6 means here his majesty. 
For as man is known by the appearance of his visual form, so the majesty which shines forth in God is his form. So it is splendor in the first thing. Absolute, stunning majesty and splendor. And the glory that Christ had in eternity, even before the foundation of the world, is beyond comprehension. You know, we creedally declare that he is uh, very God of very God, light of light. But we scarcely know what we're saying. And one of the one of the great, great challenges for all of us is to hear these words and allow them to penetrate our souls and stun us with the reality of this absolute, majestic, splendorous glory. That's what you would see if you could see him for all eternity. Incredible. At the same time, being in the form of God does not simply mean his external splendor, but his being in the form of God. And uh, the opening verses of the book of Hebrews, Hebrews 1.3, tell us of Christ that he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, that Christ is not a mere reflector of the Father's glory. He is the radiance. He is the radiator of his glory. So he shines forth his own essential being. You know, that the, the Psalm 19 tells us the heavens declare the glory of God, right? It, it, it doesn't say that they are the glory of God. They only declare the glory of God. They give a hint to the glory of God. And so he shines forth in his own essential glory with the Father in the mystery of the Trinity from all eternity. This is stunning. If you saw him, well, you probably couldn't live. And then the glory that shines out of his being and his essence. I mean, this is, this is a sense of wonder, but the wonder increases because of his, external, his eternal humility in heaven. Because though he existed in the splendorous form of God, it tells us in verse 6, if you look at it, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. The idea is that he, he didn't hold on to his glorious equality with God as something to use to advantage. So you, you need to look back to verses 3 and 4 when he's talking about looking about the interests of others, considering others more important than yourselves. And, uh, and how unlike Christ we are. But rather than viewing his equality as something to keep, he saw it as qualifying him for a humble descent to save his people. So Christ's eternal humility in heaven is a thing of absolute wonder. Absolutely equal with God. 
shining in the splendor of God, His essence radiating glory from all eternity, without beginning, without end, and yet you find His eternal humility. He didn't become humble in heaven. He always was humble in heaven. He didn't count his equality with God something to be grasped. Well, when you see this eternal humility of God, of of Christ, existing in the form of God, then you have his humility in the incarnation. Notice in verse 7. Look at it. But made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Now, the phrase, made himself nothing, uh, gives the proper metaphorical sense of the Greek, which is literally, actually, but he emptied himself. I mean... That's the translation is the right way to put it. He made himself nothing because during the early part of the last century, liberal theologians latched onto this word empty, kanao in Greek, and came up with a kenosis theory, which was that Christ in the incarnation emptied himself and ceased to be God or stripped away all of his attributes as he emptied himself. It's been thoroughly discredited because this word emptied is used five times in the New Testament and four of them are metaphorical. So it doesn't mean a literal emptying. And more, the emptying or making himself nothing is defined by the following two phrases of verse 7. Taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. So the actual emptying is the positive actions of the incarnation. So when Christ took on the form of a servant, a slave, he adopted then the appearance and being of a slave. He really did it. Just as he existed in the form of God, his own appearance and his own being became that of a slave as he so dramatically demonstrated when he stripped himself in the upper room and washed the disciples' feet. Christ did not exchange the form of God for the form of slave. He manifested gloriously the eternal, humble form of God in the form of a slave. Now, if you're following along, the other phrase that further defines his emptying is being born in the likeness of men describing his full identity with the human race. You know, I, uh, in order to kind of get my mind around the creation, I have kind of an imaginative thing that I like to think of sometimes. Several things I like to do that way. But uh, I think of, of uh, Hebrews 10, verse 6, where he says he's come to do the will of God. And I imagine... Uh, Christ standing at the height of the universe, uh, radiating his glory, so to speak. And then he does a dive through all the 100,000 million galaxies as he dives down through those galaxies. And then he comes in over the Milky Way 
and into our galaxy with his 100,000 million stars, and he passes through all these whirling wonders, and he comes around the sun, and then he comes to our planet, and he comes into the atmosphere of the planet, and uh, he dives into the womb of the Virgin, and he's conceived, and he becomes first a zygote in the Virgin's womb, and then an embryo, and then uh, a child swimming in the amniotic fluid of his mother's womb, and then on Christmas morning, incarnate into the stable. It gives me some feel in my imagination of what he did in the incarnation. He fully participated in our human experience. Christ's humility in heaven is a thing of astonishing wonder because he never became humble. He always was humble, although he existed in the form of God. And then beyond that, his humility in the incarnation is a thing of greater wonder. That uh, pastor that led me to Christ when I was a boy showed me Romans 10, 9, and 10 and, uh, in my little Bible. And by the way, I still have that little, little Bible. You can't see where the tears fall, but I can see the places that I underlined in there in a red pencil. Uh, by the way, in the, the musty smell of my sleeping bag that night after I was saved. In fact, any time I smell a sleeping bag, I think that's the smell of salvation. <laughs> well, I remember from my boyhood, my pastor, that same pastor, Verl Lindley, reciting at Christmas J.B. Phillips' fanciful dialogue called The Angel's Point of View. I don't know if you've ever seen this before. But he, Phillips creates an imaginary conversation between a very young angel who's being shown around the splendors and glories of the universe by a senior experienced angel. So you've got the little angel and the big angel. And the little angel's beginning to get tired and even a little bored. He's been shown the whirling galaxies and the blazing suns and the infinite distances, interstellar space and the deathly cold and his mind, his young mind is just so full. It seems like so much to him. And finally, he's shown the galaxy, which our planetary system is a small part. And as the two of them drew near to the star, which we call the sun, and the planets, they're slowly circling around that that the old angel pointed to a small and rather insignificant sphere turning on its axis. It looked as dull and dirty as a tennis ball to the little angel whose mind had been filled with all the glory and size of the universe. I want you to watch that one particularly, said the senior angel, pointing his finger. Well, it looks very small and dirty to me, said the little angel. What's special about that one? That, replied the senior solemnly, is the visited planet. Visited, said the little one. You don't mean by, and then he catches himself short. Indeed I do, 
the ball, which I have no doubt looks to you small and insignificant and not perhaps over clean, has been visited by our Prince of Glory. And at these words, they bowed their heads reverently. And then from there, in that fanciful account, Phillips leads the junior angel through a series of revelations about Christ's incarnation, which leaves him absolutely stunned and incredulous. And I have to say to all of us, oh, to have fresh eyes and a tender heart as we revisit these astonishing truths. We've read these words before. We perhaps have memorized these words. But if you take them to heart and dwell upon them and allow the immensity of the words that are here, it kind of brings a perpetual springtime to our lives. What a great thing to be knocked out, stunned by what Jesus did, because that is what he did. This isn't imagination. This is reality of his humility in the incarnation. Well, you've had the humility in heaven. You've had the humility in the incarnation. And then you get Christ's humility in death. And the descent bottoms out at the end of verse 7, moving into verse 8. And being found in human form, he, that is Christ, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That is, you see, human form. His human form, or more exactly, his human shape, was that of the appearance of a man. Those who saw Christ saw a man. They saw an ordinary man from externals because he had fully identified with humanity. It was not a facsimile. He really was a man. And as a real man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Now, what you want to see here is that no one humbled him. He humbled himself. The, uh, the Danish philosopher Kierkegaard left this note on this verse. He said, the text says Christ humbled himself. It doesn't say he was humbled. And then he says, oh, infinite sublimity of which it must be categorically true that there was none in heaven on earth or in the abyss that could humble him. No one could humble him. He humbled himself. No small thoughts here. Nothing could humble him. He humbled himself. And then the philosopher says, the infinite qualitative difference between Christ and every other man lies indeed in this, that in every humiliation which Christ suffered, 
It was absolutely necessary that he himself should consent and confirm that he was willing to submit to that humiliation so that every level his humbling was his own doing. His not holding tightly to his equality with God was his own doing. His emptying was his own doing. His becoming a servant in body and soul, a real servant in body and soul, was his own doing. His full entrance into humanity, becoming a real man, who at the same time was 100% man and 100% God, was his own doing, and his ultimate humbling in death was his own doing. Now, you step back from this. As you look at what's going on here in the book of Philippians, in the context of the book of Philippians, and you look at the preceding verses 3 and 4, the ones that precede these verses, in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not only look to his own interests, but also the interests of others. So, Paul has pulled out the absolutely unparalleled example of Christ in what he did in his self-humiliation, his super-humiliation, to motivate us to live like this. And I want to say, this is how it's possible. It's not possible by some moralistic Commitment to consider others more important than yourselves, it is by embracing this deep theological truth and taking it in our hearts that it swells up in our minds to consider others more important than ourselves, to put their interests first. This is the call, but it comes out of the most ravishing, deepest Christological theology that I know. That's what it's meant to do. Well, Christ's self-humiliation brought then ultimate obedience, the end of verse 8. You see it? By becoming obedient to the point of death. And so, We see Christ, if we look back to the Gospels in Gethsemane, overcome with fear because he knew what his death would entail, his becoming sin for us, right? I mean, that's what happened. He became sin for us. He knew that he had to propitiate the wrath of God so that he was impaled to the stake, so to speak, and in the darkness of Good Friday, writhing like a serpent in the gloom as he became sin for us and propitiated the wrath of God. And that is why we hear him say in the garden, Mark fourteen thirty-three, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. One of the old commentators said what he's really saying is he looked into the cup of death that he could die physically, by just the knowledge of what he had to undergo. 
And Luke further tells us in Luke 22 that in the garden there appeared to him an angel from heaven strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Such agony. In his self-humiliation and death, in his prayer, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will but yours be done. Full, absolute obedience. No one did it to Jesus. He did it to himself. No one could do it to Jesus. He did it to himself. Then I just want to say this. We get so used to seeing Jesus, uh, a crucifix, with Jesus' arms stretched out, hanging on a cross, that we blithely walk by crucifix, right? The image. Maybe we don't. But it it is so common. It's such an image that it has become, for many people, they don't even see it. You know what would shock? You know what would shock someone? You know what would shock the socks off and be so scandalous? If you saw a crucified cat or a golden retriever, you'd be revulsed. He died the most scandalous and ignominious of death. It says at the end of verse 8, even death on a cross. Humanity had not created a more degrading or loathsome experience than this. Polite Roman society, pagan society, would not mention the cross. That form of execution, it was so obscene to them. Do you know that in the early centuries, Christians didn't wear a cross? Because it was so obscene. I mean, socially obscene. It was after those first few centuries that they began to wear a cross. And I understand the wearing of cross. We understand it. It's a symbol of the sacrificial, incarnational love of God. Even death on the cross is the crowning shudder and expression of humble obedience. And here Calvin again. For by dying in this way, he was not only covered with ignominy in the sight of men, but also accursed in the sight of God. It is assuredly such an example of humility as ought to absorb the attention of all men. And listen to Calvin here, the great theologian, the great commentator. It is impossible to explain it in words suitable to its greatness. The humblest man who ever lived is Christ himself, God, man. Think of it. He was eternally humble in heaven. Verse 6. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Though all the splendor from all eternity was his, and though it was radiating out from his being, all of this glory, he was eternally humble. There was no vain pride in all of it for all eternity. 
And then, he was astonishing, self-humbling in the incarnation, verse 7, but made himself nothing. Taking the form of a servant, in essence a servant, in outwardness a servant. And then the incarnation, being born in the likeness of men as he took that long dive, so to speak, from heaven through all the universe into Mary's womb and into the stable. And then he was infinitely self-humbling his death, verse 8, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by coming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And what does Paul make of all of this for the church? Verses 3 through 5. Now look at it. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Now, I just said gently, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. But I want you to know that is an imperative. That is a command. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. The mind that goes down and down and down. This is a divine call for everyone in the body of Christ. This is the path of living a life that is worthy of the gospel. Counting others more significant than ourselves. Looking out for the interests of others. Jesus said, John 13, verse 14, If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you should do just as I have done for you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master. Now, I'm going to say in the next hour, I'll say it again. The most important thing about you is what you think of Christ. That is the most important thing about you. It's what you think of Christ. Further, the most important thing about you is what you believe about Christ. This is the revelation of the Holy Spirit, of Christ's super-humiliation. Now, just to frame it in all of this, I, I just want to expand our minds about Christ, the cosmic Christ. Turn a couple of pages over from Philippians to the opening chapter of Colossians, which is sometimes called the hymn of the Incarnation. And look at verses 15 through 18. Speaking of Christ, it says, He is the image of the invisible God. This is Colossians 1, 15 and following. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him 
All things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. The things you see from that is that Christ is the creator, the sustainer, and the goal of the universe, and the head of the church. Now, I want you to think about this, and I mentioned it. Our galaxy has 100,000 million stars. Okay, that's a lot. Our galaxy takes 100 light years to, to, to traverse. So if you left Earth and journeyed the Milky, Milky Way at the speed of light, it would take you 100 years to get across our galaxy, all right? Did you know that there are at least 100,000 million more galaxies, each with at least 100,000 million more stars, each 100 light years across in the universe? Now, I like to think of this. Well, if I could travel the speed of light, it would take me 100, it would take me 100 years to get across our galaxy. But let's say um, I'm all trekkied up. And I've got the Starship Enterprise. And I, and I can turn that baby up, you know. So uh, I'm going at warp speed 4 and 6 and finally warp speed 8. And, I, and, and I'm going so fast in that ship that the galaxies are flying by like fence posts on an Illinois road. And I travel at that speed for a thousand years, and then I make a right turn out there in trackless, endless space, and I come to a piece of stellar dust, guess what? That was created by Jesus. Everything in the universe. And not only that, he is the sustainer of all things, it says here in Colossians. He holds all things together by the word of his power. He's made everything in the universe, every star, every texture, every color, things under the earth, things above the earth, things under the sea, the stripes on the bumblebee, the fires of our tourists, everything has been made by him. And he holds it together by the word of his power. And guess what? If he said the word, there wouldn't be a big bang, there would be a big flush. And everything would be gone. And that everything it says in Colossians here is created for him, is moving toward him. It is for him, the Alpha and the Omega. And the, he is the head of the church who gave himself for us. No small thoughts. So brothers and sisters, what you think about Jesus is everything. And to begin with, you need to take to heart and hold it as best you can, his super humiliation, his humiliation in heaven, his humiliation, the incarnation, and his ultimate 
humiliation in death. This is Jesus. And what you think about Jesus is everything. May God suit it to your hearts and prepare us for, well, we've gone down. We're going to go up next time around. Let's pray. Father, we pray that the stunning revelations of Scripture would expand the souls of the people here and they would love you evermore. Everything. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.